Welcome to Native America Calling. From our studio in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I'm Andy Murphy. There are always interesting projects going on in the world of indigenous food and food sovereignty. In this episode of The Menu, an hour dedicated to indigenous food news and stories, I'll talk with a researcher about rematriating a variety of traditional corn in South Carolina, a Cherokee chef's culinary journey to her traditional homelands, and an upcoming food summit focused on Native food policy and advocacy. Join us after National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Shirley Jihad, in for Antonia Gonzalez. A federal appeals court reversed a lower court ruling and is keeping alive a lawsuit brought by Native Americans against Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. That lawsuit accuses Blue Cross of mismanaging tribe-affiliated health plans and overcharging them for health care. The Saginaw Chippewa Tribe of Michigan brought the suit to the federal appeals court, saying Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan charged hidden fees and overstated costs. Dozens of tribes around the country are backing the suit because they depend on Medicare-like rates in their insurance programs as well. The appeals court ruled the lower court acted in error. That district court threw out the tribe's lawsuit and made a summary judgment in favor of Blue Cross. After losing in court, a Nevada tribe is going directly to a California archaeological company and urging it to stop digging at a site considered sacred. The excavation at Thacker Pass is a step in the process to begin construction of a lithium mine, as the Nevada Current reports. The Reno Sparks Indian Colony sent a letter to the Far Western Anthropological Research Group. It calls on the company, in the tribal leader's words, to stop the desecrating of Thacker Pass for corporate greed. The letter compares the action to excavating Pearl Harbor or Arlington National Cemetery. Tribal history documents the site, now on federal BLM land, as the location of a massacre of Paiute men, women, and children by U.S. soldiers in 1865. Staff at radio station KEYA in Belcourt, North Dakota, say they may be able to return to the air at lower power in the next couple of days. That after their broadcast tower collapsed. The station is owned and operated by the Turtle Mountain Chippewa Tribe. Station officials say ice buildup during a blizzard combined with high winds caused the more than 300-foot tower to buckle. Support wires kept the upper portion of the tower upright, but emergency workers were forced to cut power to the 19,000-watt transmitter and antenna that broadcast the station's signal. KEYA started broadcasting in 1976, making it one of the oldest Native-owned stations. Legislation in California would rename the University of California Hastings Law School removing its namesake, Serenus Clinton Hastings, because of his role in attempted genocide of California native tribes. Christina Onestead reports. We are, we are, we are. Lawmakers and Native American tribes gathered in support of the bill to rename the University of California Hastings College of the Law. Serenus Hastings paid for militias that brought genocide and atrocities upon the California Indian people in the Eden and Round Valley and brought turmoil 
to the Yuki Indian people. Assemblymember James Ramos is the only Native American on the state assembly and an author of AB 1936. The deadly means that Hastings used to build his wealth and help fund the law school has received little scrutiny until now. Saranis Hastings went on to become California's first Supreme Court Chief Justice and Attorney General. James Russ, president of the Round Valley Tribal Council, spoke in favor of the legislation to strip Hastings from the school's name. It took 140 years for this to come to the, to the forefront, but everything happens for a reason, and this is the forefront right now. The bill also includes restorative justice provisions for the Yuki and Round Valley people. I'm Christina Onestead, reporting for National Native News. With National Native News, I'm Shirley Jihad. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support by the Gathering of Nations Powwow, a live event taking place April 29th and 30th on the powwow grounds of Expo New Mexico, featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at gatheringofnations.com and at the gates. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is the menu on Native America Calling, which is our regular feature all about indigenous food. I'm your host and producer, Andy Murphy. In this hour, we'll talk with a researcher and culture warrior about corn rematriation, which is the indigenous-led work to bring a piece of culture back to the community. We'll also talk with a Cherokee chef about her tribe's relocation to Oklahoma, changing Cherokee food systems, and what her recent culinary journey to the East Coast homelands of the Cherokee was like for her. Um, but first, we'll take a look at a local event, which is focused on Navajo Nation food sovereignty and food, food policy. You can join us too. Tell us about the Native food projects happening in your Native community. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, joining us right now from Gallup, New Mexico, is Gloria Ann Begay. She's the executive director of director of the Diné Food Sovereignty Alliance. She's Navajo. Welcome to Native America Calling, Gloria, Gloria Ann. Yes, thank you for allowing me to share some information today. Yeah, and, and that's information about the Diné Food Policy Summit. Um, first, can you tell us um, a little bit about what the Diné Food Sovereignty Alliance uh, is and, and does? Okay, thank you. Yes, uh, the Diné Food Sovereignty Alliance is a nonprofit grassroots organization on Navajo Nation, and we are established to uh, help restore the traditional food systems and traditional foods on Navajo Nation. So oh. that's kind of like all of our work we, we do. 
Yeah. Okay. And um, so there's a, a Diné Food Policy Summit happening this week. Can you um, give us a little bit of um, information about what kind of topics you guys would be uh, covering during this summit? Yes. Um, we are going to cover five basic topics, actually. Um, and this stems from our work meeting with 48 Navajo chapters out on the reservation and they listened to our uh, resolution on uh, restoring traditional foods. Also, um, we want to promote uh, Navajo uh, farm to school initiatives with our Navajo schools. And that's going to take work with um, the USDA school wellness um, policies that are in each of our Navajo schools. Um, another topic we're going to cover is um, establishing a tribal food safety certification uh, policy and process, because right now, you know, we are in three states of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah, and um, our farmers and ranchers have to sit there and follow um, all those different safety guidelines in the three states, and so we'd like to get Navajo Nation government to host and do its own tribal um, food safety process. Um, two other side um, issues that we've discovered in our work is that we have to address um, some land issues uh, regarding uh, grazing permits. And we found that hundreds of those permits are sitting in tribal courts um, as probate cases. And so it's locking a lot of lands that could be used to um, do farming and ranching. And of course, the other issue everyone's facing is um, inadequate water for um, our agriculture. So those are some basic um, broad topics that we're going to be covering, and those are uh, topics that are in our resolution that will go to the Navajo Council. Okay. Okay, can you explain a little bit about um, the farm-to-school programs? I mean, it sounds pretty, um, you know, I mean, that, that kind of explains it, but are there already programs uh, like this on Navajo Nation, in, in the schools in Navajo Nation? There are a few of our schools that are doing a few farm-to-school initiatives, and schools uh, these kinds of initiatives could ver vary very much. And so um, the most um, uh, promising and good things about those initiatives is having school gardens. And when our children can get into the dirt and plant their own little seeds and um, even some of them harvest um, produce, then the kids see the whole growing process. They appreciate better, uh, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables. And so uh, we're really happy if kids can do that because there is really, we found out, a lack of food knowledge. And some of our uh, children don't even know that um, French fries come from potatoes and um, tomatoes make ketchup. So we have a lot of food education that needs to come up um, in the school curriculums that are also associated with farm to school. Um, another mm -hmm. A big benefit is if we can encourage our local Navajo farmers and ranchers to uh, meet the safety requirements and sell those produce to the local schools. Because on Navajo, we have more than 170 Navajo schools, pre-K to 12. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, that's a lot of federal lunch money that's available. But our farmers and ranchers just need to have some of those safety trainings and uh, provide quality good food to local schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds um, um, something that would be really, really um, beneficial for students and fun for students. I mean, we, I, you know, by... Um, uh, school years, we never did anything like that. I mean, there was maybe growing a bean in a, a styrofoam cup, and then I don't really remember what happened to the little bean stalk that uh, came from that, but I know we didn't, you know, end up eating anything at the end of that little experiment. But um, yeah, definitely, I, I, and I'm pretty sure students don't know that uh, potatoes and tomatoes are, you know, indigenous um, um, indigenous foods that come from our own um, scientists from a long time ago who turned, um, you know, these these uh, plants into um, what we have now, what we have now that that's part of um, everybody's <laughs> food culture really across the world. So, um yeah, definitely. That's something that I could see would be really um, awesome for students to learn about in, in school, especially on the Navajo Nation in this, uh, you know, desert area. Um, so you, you, you mentioned, uh, let's see, you mentioned um, traditional food policy, um, food safety. All of this is about getting these foods and local foods into places like schools and hospitals and maybe like nursing homes. Um, why, why is that such a, uh, you know, what kind of policies kind of put that barrier there between traditional food and uh, the people in, in some of these programs? Um, the issue is sometimes um, the way that apparently natives, you know, uh, harvest and prepare, you know, food for um, maybe just their family tables, um, they need to be, I guess, tested and all of that because USDA only allows certain kinds of foods, you know, to um, be allowed into school uh, lunch programs. And so um, right now there are a few native uh, foods like um, they've allowed like bison uh, meat if it's, you know, USDA inspected. Mm -hmm. And so there's just very few traditional foods that are acceptable to USDA. So it, we're uh, wanting to exercise full tribal sovereignty by um, Navajo Nation saying that this is a way our ancestors have raise these uh, fruits and vegetables and, um, you know, meat for generations. And so we would like to return to some of those um, practices and, you know, feel safe that our children, you know, aren't going to get sick and we're still here. And mm -hmm. <laughs> we feel that, you know, um, we'd like to introduce uh, some of those traditional uh, values and practices with food production and food harvesting. Got it. Yeah, that's one of the things in this whole Native food sovereignty movement is really taking a look at your own tribe's food policies and uh, changing them around and proposing changes so that it's it's a lot easier to get these traditional foods and local foods into uh, places like like schools and hospitals and, um, you know, uh, day, uh, you know, daycares or, you know, places like that. Um 
Yeah. So, so, you know, you, you guys are coming up with a resolution for, um, uh, changes to policies. Is that right? Um, we are introducing, you know, a few new policies like the farm to school oh, okay. and uh, food safety as a tribal policy, not as a state or federal policy. Got it. And then we want to do some uh, two uh, major amendments uh, dealing with the land issues and our grazing permit system. And the other one, of course, is water. We just have such a lack of water and we need to, you know, step up more water for both the people and agriculture. Mm -hmm. So those will be two amendments. And then the other three are going to be new food policies. Okay. All right. Okay. And um, real quick, before we go to uh, a break here, could you tell us um, the, the date and time place of the, the policy summit? Yes, it's going to be in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at the Southwest Indian Polytech Institute. And it's up on uh, North Coors Road. I think people can Google it and mm -hmm. find out directions. And it's going to begin at 9 o'clock um, with speakers. Uh, we have invited President Nez and some council delegates who want to um, sponsor our legislation to the Navajo Council this summer. So what we're, um, the big purpose of the summit is to gather people's input and uh, voice their support for the policies we want to propose. All right, and that's this Friday, April 29th at uh, Sippy here in Albuquerque. We're going to take a quick break, but after that, we're going to come back and uh, talk about more food news. You're listening to The Menu on Native America Calling. As Native nations gather in Albuquerque, New Mexico for the first time in two years, we'll talk with some of the many musicians who are also in town about their new tunes and Native storytelling through song. Join us for this multimedia presentation on Native America Calling. Mesa Lands Community College can help you lead the way in your chosen field. At Mesa Lands, where one in three students is Native American, you get hands-on opportunities working one-on-one -on -one with instructors in wind energy, where students grow up the turbine in their first semester, silversmithing with access to the largest foundry in the Southwest, and blacksmithing in the cowboy arts. Mesa Lands has a national top 10 rodeo team, too. Info and applications at mesalands.edu. Mesa Lands Community College supports this program. You're listening to The Menu on Native America Calling. It's a special show about indigenous food news and stories. I'm Andy Murphy. We just um, wrapped up our time with our first guest, uh, Gloria Ann Begay. She was, or she's the executive director of the Diné Food Sovereignty Alliance, and they are uh, hosting a Diné Food Policy Summit here in Albuquerque, New Mexico at SIPI. That's the Southwest Indian Polytechnic Institute here on Friday, April 29th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, and it uh, looks like it's open to the public. You can find more information about that event on Facebook uh, if you go to the Diné Food Sovereignty Alliance Facebook page. 
Um, I'd like to uh, bring in another guest from the Catawba Reservation in South Carolina. We have Rue George Warren. He's a consultant for the Catawba Nation and a professional artist. Rue is a citizen of the Catawba Nation. Welcome to Native America Calling, Rue. Okay, happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you could join us. Um, so, you know, I, I came across your story, um, you know, uh, on, on social media, on Facebook. I was just kind of um, looking around at a couple of things uh, that were being shared by uh, some of my friends. And I have a lot of friends who are Native chefs and farmers and people in this whole Native food sovereignty movement. And um, I came across a, a, a talk you gave, um, I think it was last week, but it was about corn and corn rematriation. And I'd like to get this story from you about this special corn and all the work that's been done so far and what's coming ahead uh, with this corn. So I guess let's let's start from the beginning. Um, uh, tell us about this special variety of corn and, and what it has always meant to uh, your tribe, the Catawba tribe. Whoa, yeah. So uh, this is a, a beautiful variety of corn. Uh, it's a type of uh, flower corn. And unlike other tribes, we don't have stories about where the corn came from. So we know it came from trading with other tribes, right? And we know that Catawba's tried it, and they thought it was delicious. And so they decided to start growing it. And in the act of growing it, whatever variety they had gotten, or in reality, varieties probably, they got from other tribes, they started growing and over thousands of years, it became this um, just beautiful, resilient, vigorous variety of corn um, that has sustained our people all the way up until um, the termination era in the middle of the 1900s. All right. And you said flower corn. What's the flower corn? Yeah, so there's different kinds of corn. You know, there's like popcorn, and then there's uh, sweet corn, which is what most of the what most people in the grocery store think of. You know, that's what you see there. Um, and then there's flour corn, and so it's the flour corn that's turned into things like uh, masa, tortillas. Um, for us, traditionally, uh, croissant, so like cornbread, uh, ash cakes, those kinds of things. And what's amazing about it is, you know, sweet corn is delicious, but it's not super nutritious, right? A lot of it's not, a lot of the nutrition is not available to you. Um, but tribes across the country, all corn people um, in the Americas have these traditions of nixtamalization, right? So cooking it with ash or something very alkaline. And by doing that, it makes it really nutritious. And so um, that is the kind of corn variety we have is, is the kind that you use for that nixtamalization process. Got it. And, you know, we've done a whole show on nixtamalization. Um, if you're curious about that, you can go to our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com. In our archives, you can find um, episodes about corn. You can find epi an, an episode about nixtamalization. Um, it's a really fascinating process. I've done it before with some, um, some uh, blue corn that I got from Hopi Nation. And it was, um, it was a really really cool process just the smell uh, uh, alone is just 
you know, very magical. <laughs> it, uh, it, I, I'd like to do that again. I'd like to um, see about making some more tortillas. It's a long process, though, to to do that. But um, uh, so so what does this corn look like? And have you have you cooked with it? Have you eaten it so far? So uh, I love what one of our tribal one of our other tribal citizens called it. Uh, he called it the drag queen of corn. It's mm -hmm. got all of the colors you could imagine, everything from like pure white to um, so dark purple red that it's almost black. Um, my favorite are these kernels that are kind of lightish yellow, but they have these beautiful peach streaks on it. So it's it's just this beautiful corn, which makes it very easy for me to get people on board with it uh, when I go and talk to people outside the community. Because, of course, the community is totally on board with it. Um, mm -hmm. Because it's just like, look at this corn. Like, feel it. it you, you're in love with it immediately. Um, and then the other unique thing about it is that it grows incredibly tall. Um, we're doing uh, our natural resources department, which oversees our agricultural work, is actually doing a growing experiment with Davidson College, which is about an hour north of our reservation. Um, and so in their greenhouse, they're testing precipitation to see like how long, uh, how much water the, the corn needs and also uh, what, how it might fare in this kind of shifting climate using different climate models. Uh, and so they keep sending us pictures and the corn has not even totally set flower yet, but it is um, taller than I am. <laughs> um, and so this will be the third year that we've grown it since we brought it back to the community. Okay. And how tall are you? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm very tall. I'm six foot one. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, that's a that's a big uh, that's a tall uh, stock of corn there. Um, if if you want to join our conversation uh, right now on the menu on Native America Calling, give us a call. Tell us about your corn. Tell us about your traditional corn and how it's kind of moved around your Native community. We're at one eight hundred nine nine six two eight four eight. That's also one eight hundred nine nine Native. If you want to see a, a picture of of this uh, Catawba corn that Rue is talking about. It's on our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com, uh, connected to this episode here. Um, so, so Rue, let's go back just a little bit um, and t uh, tell us how this corn got um, maybe separated, if that's the right word, uh, separated from the community. Yeah, absolutely. I What's kind of amazing about it is, you know, a, a lot of what I do is teaching um, both people in our community and outside our community about different federal policies and how um, tribes you survived um, different policies and acts by federal, state, and local governments. And so, what's kind of amazing about this corn is that it's a really um, it's a it's really exemplary of of that kind of history. And what I mean is that this corn stayed with our community through. Um, the 1700s, which was the period in which uh, there was massive settler encroachment. Ever since then, we've been completely surrounded by, um, by non-Catabas. Um, in the 1800s, when South Carolina made an illegal treaty with us, the corn still stayed with us. People were able to keep it um, with us. But it wasn't until the era of termination in the 1950s um, that we finally saw the corn and the people getting separated. And that's because as part of termination, when the federal government comes in and says, in our eyes, you are no longer a tribe, um, what they do is they 
uh, parse out the land. They cut it up and allot it, right? Mm -hmm. And we know that that policy has been used in other tribal nations um, over and over again. And so in separating out the land and telling people, oh, if you sell it, you'll be able to feed your family, you'll be able to afford running water, those kinds of things, um, our, our land base reduced. It was also a period in which Catawbas were first allowed to go into public schools and also a period in which Catawbas were really first allowed to go into the workforce. Um, Rock Hill was a big mill town. And so with all of those new pressures on Catawbas to be able to feed themselves, because you need money um, to feed yourself in, in this economy here, um, that the, the ability to nurture the corn um, went away and went away until the 1990s, so within my lifetime, when the last uh, corn was being grown, uh, catawba corn. So skip forward to 2018, and that's when um, we finally got the, the wheels turning on rematriating the corn. Yeah, how did, how did you get your hands on um, on seeds? Yeah, so I I returned to my community in 2017 uh, to work on language and quickly realized I couldn't learn the language unless I learned the land because most of the words were about um, the land that we occupy, right? That we live on and care. And so um, then my my aunt slash my boss at that time uh, said, "Okay, great. Well, the year you're in charge of these 40 garden boxes." And so I had to learn about food sovereignty very quickly and, and all that stuff. Um, and so we got together people who were already working on it in our community, you know, our clinic, um, our wellness department, our uh, now our natural resources department. And the thing, and I went and talked to the elders and said, what do you remember eating when you were a kid? How did your parents cook? All these things. And the thing that people kept saying over and over again to us was, we need to bring back the corn. We need to bring back the corn. And so I heard about this guy at the University of South Carolina named Dr. David Shields, uh, who is not at all in agriculture. His area of study is uh, Broadway. <laughs> and I said, hey, I heard you're good at finding, um, you know, these seed varieties, these uh, heritage seed varieties. Um, do you, have you heard of this? And he says, I'll look into it. And I was like, uh, whatever, he's not going to look into it. Uh, but three months later, he gets back to me and he says, oh, I think I found it. And so the North Carolina Extension Office was growing out some of their heritage seed varieties um, to just test them out and then, you know, bulk up the seed that they had. And so they were doing kind of an explanation of it. And when he saw the corn, he saw that it had the same number of rows as the cobs that we find in our archaeological sites going back thousands of years. Um, he, he saw that it matched the same kind of historical descriptions that we have of the corn. And then when you look at the story of how North Carolina Extension Office got it, they got it from this family, the Leal family in Hickory, North Carolina. And when they gave it to the North Carolina Extension Office, they said, we got it from the Indians. And we were the only Indians in that area at that time. So we feel pretty confident that this is a relative of the last corn that was grown um, in contamination. Wow. Wow. <laughs> All right. Um, hey, we have a caller on the line. Uh, let's go to um, Anthony in the Four Corners area uh, listening online. Hey, Anthony. Good morning. Good morning. Do you have a question or comment? Yeah, I have two questions. Um, first of all, where can you get information on starting an indigenous foods program? And is there funding available? And um, where can you purchase native-grown foods? 
All right. Um, that's a, those are some pretty big questions. Um, so, Anthony, you've been uh, working in food sovereignty. What, what have you learned about uh, starting an uh, indigenous food program? Uh, me? Sorry. Yeah, Rue, sorry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's a great question. And the good news is that there's a lot of resources. That's one of the one of, what that's one of the amazing things about working in Indian country is that we love to share information with each other. Um, the first stop I would suggest is go to First Nations Development Institute. Um, they're a really great nonprofit uh, that worked that's worked with my community and a lot of other ones, and they have a ton of resources on there about things like um, developing policies, creating uh, food sovereignty work, and they also do funding there. Um, so that's kind of where I would check. But doing this, just like listening to other folks who are doing food sovereignty work, that's where I started and where I learned uh, everything from. Yeah, yeah, there are a couple of um, uh, Native uh, groups like uh, Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance, um, Native American Agriculture Fund, um, Intertribal Agriculture Council. Uh, Intertribal Agriculture Council, that's um, somewhere you can find like a lot of Native food that's available for purchase uh, because they work with a lot of uh, tribal and Native food producers. Um, and th there's also, you know, lots of availability out there um, among these these groups, uh, nonprofit groups uh, where you can find like native seed and stuff like that. But, um, I, uh, you know, also maybe even look local locally in the tribes there and what's going on in your area if you're interested uh, uh, about indigenous food, because that's <laughs> that's exactly what indigenous food is. It's like the food there right there in your land. Um, where you're living, where, um, you know, tribes you know, were living before you if you're non-native. Um, but, uh, Rue, let's go back to uh, this Catawba uh, corn. So you mentioned just a little bit about some of the work that's being done right now um, to, to uh, further study this corn. Um, tell us what else is being done, um, you know, focusing on this, uh, this drag queen corn. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when we finally got it, I think it was 2019 in the fall. And so we were excited to plant it in 2020. Uh, but unfortunately, COVID hit. And so we had, you know, this is another piece of it is kind of that legacy of termination. We don't have any, at that time, we didn't have any um, communal uh, farmland, uh, and I actually want to come back to that uh, a little bit, but uh, so what we had to do was plant it in our garden boxes that were at our different programs, like our senior center and our scene center and all that stuff. And so um, I just planted what we had uh, and uh, was like, I hope, I hope it grows uh, because we weren't able to, uh, all the staff were, you know, having to work from home. We weren't able to bring people out to the centers to take care of the plants. And what was amazing was that they survived with um, only like very minimal watering. I think they got water like once or twice. Uh, and then otherwise they just survived with the rain. And I feel like so silly because I used to think like, how did Catawba's water corn? Like, did they take their, our giant pots down to the river and fill them up and go and water the corn? No, they let the rain do it, obviously. Um, and so that, that was kind of an early lesson in how kind of magical this corn is. And so um, now 
uh, kind of at the end of COVID, we were able to purchase a piece of agricultural land um, while we can, while I continue to advocate and fight for uh, the return of our land from the Church of Latter-day Saints. And, and so on that agricultural land, our natural resources director, Aaron Baumgartner, whose background is in uh, science and he's a Catholic citizen, um, he came in and he was like, yes, you got to prioritize growing this corn, figuring out how to eat it, how to preserve it, how to make sure that it's actually getting to our people. And so they're doing a massive grow out of that corn um, on our on our uh, our black snake farm is the name of the farm. And, uh, you know, that, that's one of the things that I want to emphasize, because a lot of the time when I talk to non-native journalists in particular, they want to make the story about, like, look at how cool Rue is. And like, mm. My only gift is being able to talk. Um, I cannot, like, frequently go and do the same thing every day because I have ADHD. Um, and so it's, these, it's all the folks who are actually out there caring for the corn, caring for the land, making sure it's getting to people. Like, it's the whole community that's working on it. And, and that's one of the things that I kind of love about being back in my community. I lived in D.C. for a while, is that, you know, we already have this network here. We already have this kinship network. People care about these things. Yeah. Oh, sorry, we had to uh, cut you off there, but we'll be back right after this short break. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Stronghearts Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Stronghearts Native Helpline. Thank you for tuning in. This is The Menu on Native America Calling, a show about indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm your host and producer, Andy Murphy, and uh, we're talking with our guest, uh, Rue George Warren. Right now, he's a consultant for the Catawba Nation and a professional artist. And we're talking about uh, corn rematriation, a special variety of Catawba corn that is being uh, grown in the Catawba community. Community for the first time after a couple of decades of being um, a doormat, dormant, <laughs> for, uh, holed up in a, a university for a couple of decades. Um, so you can join our conversation too. Are, are you planting your native corn? Are there any uh, native food programs or projects happening in your community that you'd like to tell us about? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And uh, Rue, just before we went to break, you were talking about uh, community. Um, uh, finish your finish your comment about working with community. Yeah, well, I, I think I just want to make the point that you know this is no if if we're working on food sovereignty, right? The work of food systems, it's never one person that's doing it, right? Um, it's it's all of us. It's the people working on the farm. It's the people cooking. It's the people preserving. It's the people teaching. Um, all I can do is kind of talk about it. And so um, that, that's just something I wanted to emphasize because it so often gets left out of stories that people do about uh, Catawba Nation and the work that we do. Mm -hmm. 
And um, just to go back to the land issue, uh, can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Um, you know, I know you need a lot of, uh, you know, you need a lo lot of land to grow out uh, a lot of of corn. So, um, you know, what is it about um, access to uh, agriculture land over there in uh, the Catawba community? Yeah, well, we are in one of the fastest growing um fastest growing areas in in the southeast um we are just about 30 minutes south of charlotte north carolina which is a huge city and so real estate is you know real estate prices are just skyrocketing um even more so than they are around elsewhere around the country and so you know land keeps getting bought up um around us and and so during covid one of the things that our tribal government prioritized was uh, our tribal leadership prioritizes getting um, agricultural land uh, so that we can actually start providing that food. And so we actually purchased land. But the reason we had to do that was um, because back in during the era of termination, we had uh, the last thing that we did as a people together was sell to the Church of Latter-day Saints 130 acres of agricultural land and other land um, for one dollar. And the reason was because at the time, the church was completely Catawba, and this was a way of being able to preserve that land for all Catawbas to use without having to start paying um, taxes for it, right? Because at the time, Catawbas have no resources for the most part, mm -hmm. uh, no monetary resources. And so um, in the agreement, it was worked out between the BIA and the church and the Catawba Nation in which um, the church would hold it in trust for us. Um, but since we were restored to status in 1993, the church has yet to sit down with our tribal government and talk about what that trust relationship means um, now that we have reorganized our government. And so um, th this is an issue that is continuing on today um, and that I'm, I'm advocating for, which is for the um, church leaders to sit down with our tribal government so that that land, which is where I first learned um, to grow food with my grandpa, um, when it felt like I was pulling what felt like miles of potatoes. And so I want to, I and other people want to be able to teach the next generation and everyone um, what it means to be in a good relationship with the land okay. on that land. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, and where can we find more information about uh, uh, Kus Kataba corn and um, maybe even this uh, this issue you're talking about with the land um, uh, part, that's part of the church now. Yeah, you can always Google Catawba Nation. Um, they have a great social media accounts all over. Um, if you're interested in kind of more of the food sovereignty stuff, I'm always tweeting about it. Um, and you can also uh, find out more information specifically about the um, Land Back Initiative. Uh, and you can find me at the Leslin, which is my government name, D-E-L-E-S-S-L-I-N. That's at D-E-L-E-S-S-L-I-N. All right. Cool. Thank you so much. Uh, so let's go over to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma now, where we have uh, Chef Nico Albert Williams. She's the founder and executive chef of Burning Cedar Indigenous Foods, and she's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Nico. Hi, Andy. It's great to be here. Always good to talk with you.
Yeah, definitely. You're you're you've been really busy uh, in the last uh, year, year and a half. I think the last time we had you on Native America Calling, you were talking about uh, pandemic silver linings. You were talking about, you know, you use this time during the pandemic to start uh, this company, Burning Cedar uh, Indigenous Foods. Uh, before before we get to your your recent uh, culinary journey back to uh, North Carolina, uh, could you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, burning cedar and, and how it's grown over the last uh, year and a half. Sure. Um, so, yeah, we started burning cedar indigenous foods back in the summer of 2020. Um, after being laid off from my restaurant job, I decided to commit, you know, go all in on my side hustle, which had always been um, teaching and catering and just all things traditional foods and so it's just taken off from there in the last two years um, you know we've stayed steadily busy with um, with catering and consulting and um, you know different doing different demonstrations and basically what, what we do is we focus on traditional and modern indigenous foods so you know taking traditional indigenous ingredients and, and I'm Cherokee so I, I do focus a lot on southeastern ingredients. Um, we have a large population of southeastern tribes here in Oklahoma, so that they resonate, you know, those ingredients resonate with a lot of the people around here. But I also expand that to, you know, learning about the indigenous ingredients from all over Turtle Island. So I incorporate all of those ingredients into ancient recipes and also modern recipes where we, you know, take all of these ingredients and come up with really new um, and fun and interesting ways to cook them that appeal to people. Um, and, you know, it's all about kind of restoring our health and wellness and cultural connection through these foods. And so making new and exciting dishes out of them is often a great way to get people interested in, um, in traditional foods. So that's what we've been doing. And it's actually expanded to the point that, um, we've started a nonprofit arm of Burning Cedar Indigenous Foods called Burning Cedar Sovereign Wellness. And I've partnered with some other uh, people in our community here who are interested in sharing traditional indigenous medicine, um, ancestral knowledge of, uh, you know, indigenous birthways and all of these different, you know, indigenous ways of wellness and taking care of each other and ourselves and building community. And so we're in the process of fundraising to build a community center here in Tulsa for, uh, you know, an inter intertribal community center to be able to share basically all the work we've been doing and have a space to, to bring it to our community. Awesome. All right. And um, I'd like to uh, set up the the next part, uh, you know, the, the next question I have, but um, I would like you to um, help us understand a little bit of uh, Cherokee uh, food history. Um, you know, there's that uh, era of removal that had a big impact on uh, Cherokee food systems. Can you tell, uh, expand on that? How, how did uh, removal and that time in history affect uh, Cherokee foodways and Cherokee food identity? Absolutely. Um, it's, you know, kind of similar to what Rue was talking about with the Catawba Nation. You know, we've, we're also Southeastern people and we originated in, um, in the Appalachian region. And so that's, you know, areas of Kentucky, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina. Um, 
and that was the original space where our people made their home. And so all of our traditions revolve around the, you know, animals that we lived in community with there and used as food sources, the plants that we were around there, you know, that we had access to in the Appalachian region um, for medicine and for food sources. And then the things that we cultivated our corn and beans and squash and all of those um, essential plants that we spent, you know, generations, thousands of years um, cultivating. And um, so those, those foods were very, of course, tied to that land and that space that we were in for thousands and thousands of years. And then when colonization happened, um, you know, we slowly started to lose access to that land. And, um, you know, it's a similar story to so many tribes where eventually, you know, the treaty era happens and we were forcibly, you know, the removal happened and we were forcibly removed from our Eastern homelands to uh, what was then called Indian territory and what's now Oklahoma. And so that was a big kind of split of our tribe because there were some um, tribal members that stayed behind in the Eastern homeland and that has become the Eastern band of Cherokee Indians. And then the rest of us were all removed to Oklahoma and kind of had to reimagine and, and reestablish our tribe here. And our, our base here is Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And, you know, the, the terrain is vastly different here in Oklahoma than it was back in the Appalachian region. So, you know, our corn grew pretty well here, but there are a lot of other medicinal plants and, and other, you know, uh, traditional foods that didn't grow here. And then to expand on, you know, what happened even after removal was the allotment era where all of our land was parceled out into individual citizens who were signed up on, you know, the Dawes role or whatever role that it, they were assigned to in order to get these individual parcels of land. And then again, similar story to the Catawba people, you know, just for survival, a lot of times people had to sell those allotments to be able to feed their families. And so just the access to land has diminished. And when we don't have the land to cultivate our foods and, and things like that, then we rely on government food sources or, you know, commercial food sources. And that's where we, you know, end up with foods like fry bread, or we end up with certain dishes that we've always made changing. They evolved, you know, to reflect what the ingredients we had access to. So like a great example of that is a traditional dish um, called grape dumplings which when our ancestors made that, they would have gathered possum grapes that grew wild in the Appalachian region and in abundance, and they would be able to, you know, juice those grapes and then use that juice to make a dumpling and simmer those dumplings for like kind of a, a sweet dessert-like treat. Um, we still make grape dumplings today, but we don't have access to that, those wild grapes anymore. So we make it with Welch's grape juice and sugar and refined flour and, you know, it, it's not the same dish that it used to be. Um, it's still delicious and, and beloved by our people, but, you know, it's something that's evolved because of the way that our food access has evolved. 
Got it. Okay. And um, so, so now tell me about your trip back to um, uh, North Carolina. What was that for? What was that like for you um, to have access to those foods again and be able to eat the food from, um, you know, your original homelands? Um, I, it was something that I have always wanted to do is, is go back. You know, I think any Cherokee kind of has that um, in them where, you know, you want to return to that homeland and, and see what it feels like. And, you know, like experience the land that my ancestors were so connected to and, you know, to be able to have that opportunity to reconnect and really understand you know, it's a, it's a deeper understanding of what it means to be Cherokee, to be in that, you know, on that land, because it's so deeply tied to our identity. You know, most, I think, indigenous people, because we are tied to land in different, you know, spiritual and traditional ways, you can't really understand or, you know, you don't have as deep of an understanding of your culture until you actually connect with that land, you know? And so I was given this opportunity by the Museum of the Cherokee Indian in Cherokee, North Carolina. And um, they wanted me to come out and, you know, speak about food sovereignty and kind of talk about traditional ingredients and, you know, how to reincorporate them into your diet and things like that. And um, I jumped at that opportunity to be able to come back and, and be able to experience that, that connection to the land. And so when I got there, I was, you know, it was perfect timing because it's, it was spring, you know, early March or mid-March. And so I knew that there would be lots of things in the woods that would be coming up and, and easy to forage. And, you know, I kind of did my research before I went, like, okay, what am I going to be able to find there? What are some ingredients that, you know, maybe I had heard of from, you know, talking to elders about our traditional foods or that I've read about in books that, I've never been able to find because, you know, I'm in Oklahoma and they just don't grow there. And so I kind of went with that sort of shopping list in my head of like what I'm going to be able to find and experience while I was there. And, you know, they're just walking in the woods behind the little cabin that, that I was staying in. I, it was like all of these little spring things springing up from, from the, the forest floor and just kind of I spent a lot of time just sitting there and kind of trying to identify all of these different plants that I was finding and just feeling how different it was than back in Oklahoma and it really made me think a lot about like what that must have been like for my ancestors to be in a different place like that. Got it and then yeah, what it must have been like to be, you know, really torn away from that land. Um, wow. Thank you, Nico, for sharing that with us. Um, you can find uh, Burning Cedar Indigenous Foods all over social media. Uh, thank you to our other guests as well, Rue George Warren and Gloria Ann Begay. Join us for a very special show tomorrow featuring musical artists from the Native Guitars Tour. I'm Andy Murphy. We'll see you next time.
program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. Hoka. CMS programs are available to help manage diabetes in our communities. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.